This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit kyber.org to download or purchase this book. The Christian Philosophy of Education Explained, 2010, Stephen C. Perks, Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England, narrated by Nathan F. Conkey. Chapter 4 Education and Dominion. As we have seen, education is a central aspect of the Christian's parental responsibilities under the covenant that God has established with his people. In order to appreciate the significance of the role that education occupies in the outworking of this covenant, we need to understand the biblical teaching on the covenant. We have already looked briefly at the nature of the covenant. We shall now consider the purpose and scope of the covenant and the bearing this has on education. The significance of the role that education plays in the covenant life of God's people will become apparent when it is seen in this broader context, and the necessity of a specifically Christian philosophy and practice of education even more so, since it is this broader context which gives education its proper direction, that is to say, its purpose and vision in practical terms. The Creation Mandate The purpose of the covenant relation that God has established with mankind is to enable man to serve and glorify God by fulfilling his cultural mandate as God's vicegerent on earth. This cultural mandate is clearly set forth in Genesis. God created man in his own image, male and female he created them, and God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1, 27-28 This is man's cultural, or creation, mandate, his calling in terms of the purpose of God, and it is a necessary consequence of the fact that man is created in God's image. Hence, the Westminster Shorter Catechism rightly ties together, inseparably, these two aspects of man's nature. God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. Question 10. Indeed, the cultural mandate is an aspect of the image of God in man. Since God is the sovereign ruler of his creation, having absolute authority and total dominion, man, who is created in his image, is to reflect, in a creaturely way, that dominion and rulership through his stewardship of the earth under the guidance of God's law. That is to say, just as the image of God in man consists of knowledge, righteousness and holiness, because God is an omniscient, righteous and holy God, so also it properly involves dominion over the creatures. Since God is the sovereign Lord of creation, in whose image man has been created, and thus whose communicable attributes, including that of dominion, he is to reflect as he images God on earth. In other words, since man is created in God's image, he thinks God's thoughts and does God's works after him, not in an original creative way, but in a recreative, imitative way. Hence the creation mandate given in Genesis 1.28 stipulates that man should take dominion over the earth and subdue it for the glory of God 
and to his own benefit, just as God, in a much higher sense, as the sovereign Lord of creation, rules over his creation and works all things for his own glory. Hence also, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 instructs us to be imitators of God. A little further on, in verse 22, he shows us what this means, how it is worked out in practical terms in our family life. We are told to act in a certain way and to do certain things because this is how God has acted and what God has done for us. We are told that the husband is to be the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wife should be subject to her husband. Likewise, husbands are to love their wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Verses 23-25 to In the same way, a father must discipline and chasten his children, just as God disciplines and chastens his people. And this must be done in the context of loving care, just as God disciplines his people out of loving care for them. And without this, there can be no dominion in our family life, as our age sadly demonstrates all too well. Without this loving discipline and chastening, children will not learn to govern themselves under the covenant according to God's law, and thus they will not be able to take godly dominion over the earth. Dominion in our domestic life, therefore, is achieved by imaging or imitating God in the way we in the way we relate to each other as members of a family. Likewise, in every other area of life and thought, we are to image God on earth by thinking God's thoughts and doing God's works after him. Imaging God in a creaturely way is how man takes dominion as God's vicegerent and thus fulfills his cultural mandate. And God has clearly made known to man how he is to do this in his law word. This dominion is, as R.J. Rushtuni has written, first of all, over ourselves, second, with respect to our calling, and third, over the natural realm, the world around us, biologically, agriculturally, commercially, historically, and so on. As Rushtuni rightly points out, this dominion is not domination. It is the exercise of godly authority, power, and oversight wherever God gives us the responsibility. The extent of this creation mandate is clearly set forth in Genesis 1.28. Man is to subdue the whole earth and rule over every living creature that moves upon the face of the earth. Man's dominion is to be worldwide and all-embracing. He is the steward of God's creation and therefore responsible to God for the productive exploitation and management of the earth and its resources. Hence, man's calling is to godly dominion over the whole earth and in every area of his life, thought and work. He is to develop both his own potential and that of the world he has been given to rule over as the means by which he is to serve and glorify his creator. The covenant regulates and governs how man is to take dominion over the earth in the fulfilling of his creation mandate. Man's calling to subdue the earth and exercise dominion over it is embraced totally by the covenant, and it is in terms of the requirements of that covenant, that is to say in terms of the covenant law, that he is to realize this calling. Thus, the covenant, as we have seen already, is the supreme and all-embracing fact of life for man, 
man cannot escape its requirements, nor his responsibilities under it. As a covenant keeper, man lives in fellowship with God and receives the blessings and privileges of adoption into the household of God in Christ. As a covenant breaker, he stands under the curse of the covenant law and the sentence of eternal death it pronounces against all who transgress its commandments. In either case, the sanctions of the covenant are inescapable for man. Since man is in all things, by virtue of his creation in the image of God, a covenantal creature, and required by God to think and act in conformity with and obedience to the all-embracing covenant that God has established as the basic principle of fall and redemption. When Adam sinned, he rejected the definitive interpretation of reality set forth by God's word and attempted to frame his own definition and interpretation of the world he was in to determine for himself how he should live and impose his own concept of order and law onto reality. He would thus make himself the ultimate judge of his own ideas and the ultimate authority in all predication. This was Adam's original sin, and it is this sin which constitutes the foundation of all sins. It is the condition of rejecting God and his authority into which all men are born by nature since the fall. In this condition of rebellion, man attempts to rid himself and the world around him of God and his word as the basis of all understanding by rejecting God and his creative purpose as the fundamental principle of interpretation of reality in every aspect of its being. Man attempts to deprive the created order of God and his purpose and, as a result, he becomes totally depraved since he refuses to acknowledge God in all things. In every aspect of his being, he denies God and his will and seeks instead a life of autonomy. This is the meaning of the doctrine of total depravity. It is not that man is incapable of doing anything that is in itself good, for he is evidently capable of that, but that in all he is and does in this fallen, unredeemed state, good or bad, he denies God and his purpose. Thus man denies God and his dominion in the totality of life and lives instead under the dominion of sin. Only on his own terms will man allow God back into the scheme of things as determined by his own autonomous rationality. That is to say, only a God who is basically a construct of man's own rationality, a God made in the image of man, is deemed to be acceptable or reasonable. Thus, man frames his own religion with his own God, a religion within the limits of pure reason as man sees it. This rebellion against God's authority thus aims to overturn the order of creation as God intended it. It is a radical defacing of reality by man, an attempt to overthrow the one who alone can give meaning to the world in which man lives, and therefore its end is the death of man and his culture. It is only through God's saving grace in Jesus Christ that man is delivered from this condition and restored to his original position as God's legitimate vicegerent over the earth. Outside of Christ, man is under the dominion of sin. In Christ, man is delivered from that dominion into the dominion of grace and of God's kingdom, and his original dominion mandate is restored. However, a far greater blessing awaits mankind in Christ than was his before the fall. In Christ, God's people are predestined to the adoption as sons in the household of God, 
their perseverance is sure, and they live as kings and priests of God in Christ, their new covenant head. Thus, in Christ, man's dominion mandate is renewed and expanded to account for God's redemptive purpose. Man's calling as God's vicegerent over the earth is restored, since the covenant relation between God and man is renewed and its substance ratified in Christ. But the form of the covenant is new. Man is restored to communion with God by grace through faith, and thus it is a covenant of redemptive grace in Jesus Christ. This means that man's original creation mandate is now enlarged to take account of the great commission given by Christ to his church to preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, 18-20 Thus the Christian mandate incorporates the creation mandate and the great commission. The people of God are to bring the gospel of Christ to bear upon all things and subject every thought and deed to the authority and rule of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5 The covenant. The covenant relation to which man is restored by faith in Christ is thus a covenant of dominion in Jesus Christ. The work of Christ has brought about a renewing of all things. Of course, this renewing of all things finds its ultimate consummation in eternity. Nevertheless, the historical fact of Christ's incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension means that this work of renewal has already begun in history and will progress through time towards its consummation at the end of the age. Calvary, therefore, is the focal point of all history. The event upon which the history of men and nations, and indeed of the whole world, turns. Through Christ, man is redeemed and restored in his calling as God's vicegerent on earth. In Christ, he is once again a prophet, priest and king, proclaiming the good news of redemption through Christ and bringing all things into subjection to Christ. His task is to bring Christ's rule into every area and aspect of life. The Great Commission is thus the renewal of man's original creation mandate. But, taking account of man's fall into sin and his redemption through faith in Jesus Christ, it is the creation mandate, plus the proclamation of man's deliverance from the dominion of sin and his restoration into covenant fellowship with God and Christ, God's law sets forth the terms of this covenant with its promises and blessings on God's part and its obligations on man's part, as well as its cursings and judgments against those who transgress its commands. Those who, through faith, look to Jesus Christ alone for salvation are delivered from these judgments of the law against sin, since Christ bore the curse of the law in their place. As it is written, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 Those who put their faith in Christ are thus delivered from the law as an indictment against sin. They are no longer under law, that is, under the sentence of the law, but under grace. In regeneration, the believer has God's law written on his heart by the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, so that he obeys God's commandments willingly, out of love for God, and not out of fear of judgment. Thus, man is restored to covenant fellowship with God by means of God's free grace through faith in Christ. As a believer, he is not under a covenant of works as a means of justification, but he is, by grace through faith, delivered from sin, which is the transgression of the law, and renewed in the inner man so that he delights to serve God and obey his law.
the law remains for the believer a perfect definition of righteousness, and thus the standard by which he is sanctified in Christ's image, for Christ kept the law perfectly. The law, therefore, remains a constant factor in the covenant of grace, and thus in the life of the believer also. But the believer's relationship to the law is changed under the covenant of grace. Romans 7, 1-4 He is no longer under the law as a sentence of death, since Christ has borne that death sentence for him. But he is under the law as a way of life, a rule of conduct, that is to say, as a way of living righteously and of fulfilling his calling to subdue the earth and exercise dominion over it. And through the indwelling spirit, he is renewed and given grace and help to obey God's law. Romans 8.4 The covenant of grace is thus the restoration of man into covenant fellowship with God by means of grace through faith in Christ. This covenant under which man is redeemed in Jesus Christ embraces the whole of man's life just as the original covenant with Adam embraced the whole of life. To limit the scope of this covenant is to limit the nature of the redemption that Christ purchased for his elect. Christ died to redeem the whole man. That is to say, his death was a price paid for the redemption of the whole man, and thus every area and aspect of his life, not just the soul. Christ's redeeming work embraces the whole man, in the whole course of his life. It affects his inward and his outward life, his private life and his culture. The Christian covenant, therefore, comprehends and governs the whole of man's life. It embraces not only his private, vocational and family life, areas of personal responsibility, but church and state also, areas of public responsibility. Since Christ died to redeem the whole man in the whole course of his life, these areas of public responsibility come under the rule of Jesus Christ and are aspects of our covenant life in him. The Christian covenant is all-embracing. It covers the personal and vocational life of man and also the spheres of family, church and state. The covenant relation to which man is restored in Christ finds its proper expression in the faithful exercise of the creation mandate and the Great Commission, in obedience to God's law, confirmed by Christ in Matthew 5.17 and 28.18-20. Both the creation mandate and the Great Commission are necessary to man's calling as God's vicegerent on earth, for only when both are given their full significance will the Christian community, tr- will the Christian community truly represent Christ's body on earth, reigning as kings through the exercise of godly dominion in obedience to their creation mandate, ministering as prophets of Christ by by proclaiming his word to a fallen world and exercising their priestly calling to bring all things into subjection to Jesus Christ in obedience to the Great Commission. The covenant that God has established with his people is thus a covenant of redemptive grace and dominion in Jesus Christ. The Role of Education As we have already seen, the family has a vitally important role to play in society through its educational responsibilities. It is in the context of family life that the child learns to govern himself through the discipline and education he receives from his parents and those to whom they may delegate their authority in schools, etc. As he learns and grows in this way, he is equipped for responsibility in his calling 
responsibility in his future calling, in his family life as a parent himself, and also responsibility in church and state, should he be called thereto. It is in terms of his understanding of the scope of the covenant that education finds its significance for the Christian. Education is the means by which the child is trained for life, by which the child is trained for life in his God-given role as vicegerent over the earth, governing all things under his authority according to God's word, proclaiming the sovereign word of God in all things, and bringing all things into subjection to Christ. If the child is to be equipped to fulfil this calling, it is important that a Christian philosophy and practice of education should be pursued at every level in the child's development and in every subject within the curriculum, academic or otherwise. In every subject and in all areas of life and at all ages, in church, at home, at school, at work, etc., we are, as Christians, growing up and learning our duty to God in Christ. This is so for all Christians, at all times. It is important, however, that the child should be nurtured in such a life of service from the very beginning. We are commanded to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Romans 13.14 Also, Galatians 3.27, Ephesians 4.24 This does not mean merely that we should abstain from obvious sexual sins, etc., but that the whole course of our lives is to be characterised by conformity to the image of God in Christ, and that we are to make no provision for the denial of God and His Word in our lives. This has important and far-reaching implications for the kind of education we provide for our children. An education that denies God and His Word as the interpretive principle of all things, including all academic disciplines, is an education that, implicitly denies the whole of biblical truth and the validity of Christian faith. To subject our children to such an education is to deny the sovereignty and lordship of God over our children and thus apostasy from the faith. As Christians, we are to subject all things to the rule of Christ and the authority of his word and we are to understand all things in terms of his word, whether the fields of theology, morality, history, art, commerce, archaeology, cosmology, philosophy, or whatever area of life we seek to understand and develop. For parents, this means that at every level and in every area of the child's growth and development, both morally and academically, he is to be nurtured in the Word of God and instructed in terms of a Christian worldview, which brings all aspects of his education under the definitive interpretation of the reality set forth in God's Word. All subjects, therefore, must be brought into conformity with God's revelation and taught on the basis of the Christian worldview set forth in that revelation. Without such an education, the child will not mature in his calling to image God as his vicegerent over the earth, for education is the training ground for that task. The child must be trained in self-government under God in his personal, vocational and family life and it is only as he learns to govern himself and his family in this way that he is equipped and thus permitted by God's word to bear office in church and state, should he be called to that task. His education, therefore, must be dominion-orientated at all points. That is to say, it must prepare him to exercise godly authority, power and oversight wherever he is given responsibility. 
The purpose of Christian education is to equip man for dominion in Christ through the whole course of his life. For his vicegerency on earth is an aspect of is an aspect of his creation in the image of God. The meaning of discipline. Christian discipline must be aimed at achieving this God-given dominion task. It must be dominion-orientated discipline, that is, a regime of self-government under God in accordance with God's creative purpose for man. It is important here that we do not confuse discipline with punishment. The two are not the same, though both are essential for the child's development and growth in Christ. Punishment is what happens, or should happen, when discipline breaks down. Discipline, according to the Oxford Concise Dictionary, is behaviour according to established rules. Godly discipline, or Christian discipline, is behaviour according to God's established rules, as laid down in his law. Furthermore, the word discipline comes from the Latin word for disciple, discipulus, which is itself derived from the verb disco, meaning to learn. Thus, as R. J. Rushdoony has pointed out, to be a disciple and to be under discipline is to be a learner in a learning process. If there is no learning and no growth in learning, there is no discipline. It should be obvious, therefore, that godly discipline is impossible without godly learning. No amount of mere punishment can produce Christian discipline on its own. Without godly learning, punishment produces nothing. It is only against the backdrop of a loving environment in which the child is to learn to think and act obediently in all things that punishment has any value and meaning. As Christian parents, we are commanded to train up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that is, to train them in godly discipline by means of godly learning. How can this be done if our children receive ungodly learning in state and pagan public schools? Ungodly learning produces discipline in terms of ungodly principles. To subject our children to ungodly learning is to subject them to ungodly discipline and thereby to train them up to be pagans under a pagan discipline. Such an education is a total reversal of the biblical pattern of education and apostasy from the faith, far more serious than the trifling departures from established church tradition that so many who send their children to state schools are continually at pains to expose in their brethren. Such nitpicking and judging of others can be observed in churches the length and breadth of the country each Sunday, especially among Reformed and Evangelical churches. It is truly amazing how Christians can sit in church and criticise their brethren for failing to observe man-made traditions and rules that are of minor importance, to say the least, and even feverishly guard their pulpits and communion tables from those who do not adhere to their particular confessional standards, and yet they will send their children to state schools to receive ungodly learning and ungodly discipline without batting an eyelid. Such ungodly behaviour is not according to Christian discipline. God's established rules of behaviour for parents. It is Pharisaism of the worst kind, for those who engage in it not only vitiate their own witness, but bring ruin upon the next generation by failing to provide an education for their children in terms of godly learning. 
Those who thus subject their children to ungodly learning in this way should consider the words of Christ. Permit the children to come unto me and stop hindering them. Luke 18.16 To subject our children to ungodly learning is to subject them to ungodly discipline and to hinder them from coming to Christ. It is thus a denial of the covenant that God has established with his people. The Bible condemns this. It is our duty, and it should be our pleasure, to raise our children in the learning and discipline of the Christian faith, and that means providing a godly education, learning in terms of godly principles, in every sphere of life and at every level. It also means educating the child for dominion under the covenant that God has made with his people. The child must learn to take his place in the adult world as God's vicegerent, and therefore he must be trained to exploit it according to God's law, for his own benefit and for the benefit of mankind. For, by so doing, he glorifies his Creator, whose purpose he serves thereby. The Christian's calling is one of dominion in Christ, not escape from the world. And therefore the aim of Christian education should be to train up the child into that dominion. The Christian must overcome the world. 1 John 5, 4 And this can only be achieved by godly learning and godly discipline in all things and by obedience to God's established rules of behaviour. Of course, this is only possible through the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But this is how he works in enabling God's people to overcome the world. Likewise, in the education of our children, godly learning combined with behaviour according to God's established rules of conduct, his law, must characterise the whole educational enterprise. Conclusion Education is a covenant responsibility for Christian parents. That is to say, it finds its proper context and meaning in terms of the covenant that God has established with his people and under which they are redeemed by Christ from the dominion of sin, in order that, they might live a life of service to God in all things. The education of our children, therefore, must be pursued in conformity with the nature and conditions of that covenant at all points. As we have seen, this covenant is a covenant of redemptive grace and dominion in Jesus Christ, and thus we must educate our children for dominion in Christ as members of his covenant people. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.